You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. So I think everyone here knows me. My name is Ryan, for those of you who are a little unsure. Um, hey, it's good to see you. Um, so Charlie's on, or Charlie was on sabbatical, so he's been kind of uh, handing out the preaching responsibilities while he's gone. And I think subconsciously he knew he did a very foolish thing by giving me a microphone, because that's why he's actually back here this Sunday. Um But in order to start us off, I'm going to have Brittany read the parable of the sower for us. So if you have your Bibles, um, either on your phone or if you're a good Christian in the good book, uh, you can open to Mark 4, 1 through 20. And Brittany's going to read it for us. All right, Mark 4. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying thirty, some sixty, some a hundred times. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on a rocky places, hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Thank you. Would y'all pray with me real quick? Um, Heavenly Father, you're, when you tell parables, they're, they're true in the small and in the large. And um, in a sense, as we're listening to your word, uh, this parable is playing itself out in a very invisible way in our hearts. Um, so I, I pray that this morning um, you till the soil so that it would land on good soil and take root. And God, I pray that you would work through me and in spite of me. Um, would your spirit bring this, uh, this good news to life? Would it actually transform us and shape us? We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So some of you guys um, might know that my wife and I, we help co-lead a, uh, a ministry here or north of here in South Scottsdale. Um, it's a ministry that's centered around serving the, 
neighbors uh, in our community experiencing homelessness. Uh, we've been doing it for almost three years now. And one of the things that I absolutely love about it is I came in with a lot of loaded presumptions that I had no idea were there. Um, and what I've found is that through serving on God's mission, I think God has changed and formed me far more than the people that I thought I was going to be changing and serving. Um, there were a lot of things that were brought up, like um, the fact that I had an invisible savior complex I didn't know about, or that um, I said I saw these people as the image of God, but I didn't. Um, and I said I loved these people, but I had no idea what love meant until it actually required some suffering and sacrifice to meet the needs and, uh, and to love these people. Um, but I think the biggest and the most transformative uh, story that's happened to us at the, the, the homeless ministry or what we call the shower ministry um, for those of you who, do, who don't know, what we do is we allow people to come on to a church campus that's out in South Scottsdale. And they've got this random shower facility inside, um, and people can come in and they can use it, wipe off, clean off, and then um, they can have a, have a meal, uh, spend some time just hanging out and having good conversation. Um, and it had gone really, really well for a good year or so. We had a regular 8 to 12 that would show up um, who would take their showers. They would leave. Um, but we had built this really, really good rapport with them. Um, and the relationship was not transactional at all. It was very, um, very on the same level, very uh, human to human kind of interaction, not a... Uh, us above and taking care of you. And it was beautiful. Uh, we saw three people come to Christ within a couple of years um, serving, and we didn't evangelize once. It was just the Spirit uh, working in and through prayer and restoring them to see themselves as the beloved image of God that they had lost. Um, but there was this one point where we had someone come along to offer their gifts and services uh, who had been a professional chef at one point. And we thought, this is, this is actually really cool um, because this woman was offering to cook and deliver a five-course meal that you would be paying $200 for at a resta restaurant. Like this stuff was top, top-notch. Nice little French sauces, desserts, dainty forks, everything. It was amazing. Um, and so we were really excited about that. So we started uh, incorporating that into what we were doing, and the people loved it. And we were able to have, like, real hot meals with them, and it was beautiful. And word started to spread. And so people were showing up not just for the showers. They were also showing up to get some of the meals. And so we grew from like 8 to 10 to 12-ish to 20. And then the next week came and we grew to 25. And then the next week we had 30 people showing up. And 40, 50. Sometimes I think we were getting to around 60 people were showing up when we had the original 10. Um, and the ministry kind of, the flavor kind of changed a little bit uh, because we had been able to focus so much time and effort on just committing to the relationships right in front of us. And all of a sudden we started to turn into a wait staff uh, so that we could kind of keep the program alive and keep the thing going because there were so many little bitty things that needed to be done. There were so many things that needed to be done in the kitchen. There were so many things that were needed to be done for setup. And it became very, very busy. And I'll never forget, there was one night we were doing um, we were doing the meals, and I was the waiter. And I kept going back and forth between the kitchen and the tables. And I noticed the, the vibe completely changed from room to room. I would go to the tables. It was happy. There was laughter. 
Um, there was some good conversation. And then I would run into the kitchen. You could just feel the tension just building and all the stress. And this woman who had offered her services, like, really getting burnt out. I mean, it was a lot. And then I would go back in, bring out the food, and you could feel everything kind of melt away. And then I'd go back into the kitchen. It was just, ugh. Kind of toxic, to be honest. There's a lot of grumbling and complaining and um, bad mouthing of the people that we were um, that we were serving. And then there was one point when I I went back out again and um, I saw that Brienne and another guy were having a conversation. I didn't get to hear the words, but she told me about it later. She said that this guy had showed up. Um, and it had been, what was it days or was it weeks? It was either days or weeks that he had gone without eating and he had a plate put in front of him and he looked at the plate and he looked at the people around him and he's like, I don't know why I've ever doubted God. He always comes through. And when I heard that, I realized that we had been pursuing the kingdom, right, um, as this program grew. But we had totally lost sight of the actual kingdom, the small, invisible kingdom that was happening right in front of us. It was in those small, quiet turns of the heart that the kingdom was breaking in not in the big acts of service that we were doing. And it was such a strange feeling to know that the king kingdom had been staring me right in front of my face for months, and I had completely missed it. So I think when, we've, when we hear the parable of the sower, um, when we've heard it preached, um, or when we read it, a lot of the times we come in with maybe this uh, preconceived and loaded assumption and understanding that this is a story about people who are saved or get the kingdom or uh, the people who are not saved and don't get the kingdom. And I think in a sense there, there might be a little bit of truth to that, but that I fear that when we read it through that lens, it becomes a major reduction of something much larger that Jesus is trying to say. Um, and we miss the warning that he's actually trying to give. I don't know if you guys noticed as she was reading, the very, very middle portion of the story was about Jesus taking the disciples away from the crowd and telling them that you need to hear this. Don't you understand this? If you don't get this, you're not going to get anything else. And it serves as a warning, not so much for the crowd, but for the disciples. This is a warning for us. And I think it's so interesting that uh, we'll see as we dive into it that um, the disciples saw Jesus face to face and they didn't get it either. We're going to see that Peter, the closest of Jesus's disciples, the one who would lead his church, falls into each of these harder soils throughout his gospel. And I think there's also an interesting parallel in the fact that Satan himself, the highest of the angels, stood before the glory of God. And he fell. He missed the kingdom entirely. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what are the pitfalls that Jesus is warning us about that prevent us from the perception of the kingdom. So I think the uh, first hint that Jesus gives to us is that we see a separation um, between the disciples and the crowd. Um, so first of all, why was there a crowd? Well, we know there was a crowd because 
Jesus was doing some pretty sweet stuff. He was doing some miracles, right? Like he's going around, he's healing people. Uh, he's raising people from the dead. He's taking scales off of the eyes of the blind. Um, he's doing some pretty cool things. And if you lived in the ancient world and you heard that someone was doing miraculous things, you, I mean, out of curiosity, you would want to do that. You would want to go see that happen. Um, but then also there's a, uh, a deep-rooted cultural expectation that he's starting to hit on for these people as they're seeing all these miracles happen. <laughs> so you remember the, the people that are gathering and watching uh, Jesus are mostly the Jews. And the Jews had this expectation um, that soon a Messiah would come and set the world good, right, and perfect the way that it was supposed to be. And a lot of them have this image of the prophet Daniel um, speaking the, these, uh, this prophecy about a, um, a savior who would come and he would be a conqueror and he would have the world as his footstool. So there's this warfare-ish conquering imagery that meshes a little bit with their current circumstance. Right now, they're conquered by Rome, and there is this deep longing and hope that maybe Jesus would be the one to vindicate and release them from their oppressors. And so that is why Jesus says, we need to talk about this away from the crowd. And he tells the parable as a means to subvert this image and expectation and to reshape what we imagine the kingdom or the Messiah actually looking like. So in this parable, Jesus gives us three kinds of hard soil and then a picture of a good soil. He gives us four different paths. The first path that he tells us about is the, um, well, the road, the, the path. Um, and he gives us a little bit of a clue by what he means by this. Uh, so he says that on this path, uh, seed falls onto the ground, this hardened soil, um, but the seed is never able to take root. And in fact, Satan comes along behind and he eats up the seed before it's ever able to take any sort of root. So what does he mean by this? Um, I think it's important for us to consider the path and Satan. So a path, what, what is a path? Well, a path is a way that someone will walk from point A to point B. It's the easiest path to getting from your starting point to your destination. And over a period of time, people keep walking down this road. And they keep walking down this road. And as this road keeps getting walked down, uh, the, the grass starts to tamp down a bit. It bends out of the way and the path becomes visible. And soon, as you're walking from point A to point B, it seems insane to not walk on the path. I don't know if you guys have ever gone hiking um, next to, well, I don't know, call it hiking. Uh, if you've ever walked on a trail, but like you, you see the trail, but then you try to like walk outside of the trail to make, make yourself feel like, you know, you're a survivalist or something, or you're, you're living a hard life off the road. But there's still something in you that kind of rankles. You're like, it, it's like gravity. I got to get back on the road. Um, so I think that should be maybe a hint, number one. Um, the road is visible. It's easy, and it has a powerful pull. So why is Satan on this, on this path? Well, if we consider Satan, um, think of where we've seen him before. In Genesis 1, we see that Satan deceives man um, and tells Adam and Eve that it would be better to reject the will and the wisdom of God, which would freely give eternal life and instead decide for himself what was good and evil and thus become like God. 
in Mark 1, we see that um, Jesus is tempted by Satan after his baptism. It doesn't say much outside of that, but then later on in Matthew, um, it, it, or sorry, not later on, but in the other gospel, Matthew, it gives a little bit more of a picture of what that temptation looked like. And we see that Satan tempts Jesus with three things. One, he, he tempts Jesus to turn stone into bread or to bend the created order in natural world to suit his comfort and his needs. The second temptation he gives them is to throw himself down from the temple where thousands from all over came to worship daily and to win the world over with instant and cheap, meaningless fame. And then temptation number three, he asks Jesus to bow before him and he promises that he will deliver all the kingdoms to him on a silver platter. So the third temptation, political power and rule. <laughs> then, of course, we also see Satan show up one more time later on in Mark. And it's when he's talking to Peter. In Mark 8, 31 through 38, let's see. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind on the things of God, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what is it profit to man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father and with his holy angels. So I guess the question we need to ask ourselves is if the three modes of temptation are the desire to win the world through an act of fame or fame in general to win the world over through power um, and rule or win the world over um, through the third way which I'm blanking on right now was third way oh bending uh, nature to to our will I guess the question we need to ask is how could the church possibly step into these traps? How could they be tempted to fall into these things? So I want you all to turn to each other, maybe in groups of three or four. I want you to think, how could the church, not the world, the church maybe fall for this? Go ahead and go. Okay, I want to hear... Um, so I'd love to hear from some of you guys what were some of the brilliant things that were said in your groups. And if, it, if you wouldn't mind, when you share, will you, um, will you yell it? Because if you know me, I don't hear very many things. So, uh, yeah. So what, what, uh, what were some pearls of wisdom that you heard? Uh, we said comfort because it's like it's cold right now, so it would be nice to not be cold. So a lot of times we're just thinking about our basic needs rather than coming together as the people of God. That's great. I feel like Oprah walking around in the crowd. Who else? 
Who else? Who else has something they need to share, baby? <laughs> Stephanie Whedon said something really good earlier. We were talking about like <clears throat> the temptation for churches to do something big with lots of people and get lots of results and look successful. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of us have heard that um, Mars Hill podcast, The Rise and the Fall of Mars Hill. Um, and that resonates so deeply with us because Mars Hill is just a microcosm of a larger uh, cultural problem in the evangelical church where we think it's the big, flashy, famous acts that start a movement that are going to win the world. Um, but it's so ironic that when you try to win the world, you actually become like the world. Um, I think the temptation we always have to be on guard on is that Jesus is not asking us for a kingdom that is fast and, and loud and famous uh, and large. I think it's interesting that in the natural world, the largest animals have the shortest lifespan. Um, he's asking for the small, the slow, the sustained, the humble. That's really good. Yeah. And um, with, with all of these, it is kind of this common thread that this is um, the common denominator to all those temptations is that this is man saying, let us take power for ourselves. But we see that that is a very distorted view of power and that Christ's power looks very, very, very different. Um, you might remember that uh, verse from Philippians 2 where it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who was, who though he was in the form of God, kind of powerful, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being in born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does Christ do with his power? He gives it away. So that's the first oil. The second soil that Jesus talks about is the hard soil. Um, this is the one I had the hardest time with. Because the hard soil, he says the traits are, that this is someone who receives the word with joy. There is an outward expression of gratitude and acknowledgement that the word is good. And not only is there an acknowledgement that the word is good, it actually gets in there. It starts to take root. So it starts to sprout. And somewhere along the line, that sprout looks the same as the sprout that actually bears fruit. But then that sprout hits the rocky soil, and then the sun hits it, and it dies away because it did not have deep root. I have been praying and thinking about what to do with this. Um, this, is, this is really disturbing. Because, like I said, this looks the same at first as the one that ends up bearing fruit. So before I go into what I think that might mean, um, I think it's important to look again at Peter. Uh, Peter in Mark 14. Remember this story. Peter says, uh, or sorry, and Jesus says to them, all his disciples, you all will fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter 
said to him, even though they might fall away, I will not fall away. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And we know how that story goes. And we see that Peter falls away once the heat starts to turn up a bit and Jesus is getting arrested and the people in the crowd are saying, hey, aren't you one of Jesus's disciples? And he says, no, that's not me. No, I'm pretty sure you really look like the guy that was hanging out with Jesus. Nope, that was not me. And he denies Jesus three times. <laughs> it was the fear of the ensuing pain and suffering that did not allow Jesus to have the courage to enter in to the call that Jesus had for discipleship. So why do I find this so hard? I think this is the biggest trap that the evangelical church falls into. I think a lot of us, and I'm really thinking about myself, were raised in an environment where we were called to conversion, not discipleship. And it makes me really scared when I think that there are going to be a lot of people who said, yes, I believe in God as my Lord and Savior, but they do not change. We see that even the demons acknowledged Jesus as Lord. When Jesus casted the demons out from um, the possessed man, they acknowledged him as Lord right before he cast him into the pigs. Um, we see... We see an acknowledgement of God that does not lead to a fruitfulness of God. We see that the kingdom of heaven is not, not even for the religious sorts of things or the, um, the acts of piety. Even the Pharisees did that. So what's the difference between the hard soil and the soft soil? The difference is a person must be transformed, must be willing to be transformed in order to have their hard heart softened. That process takes place simultaneously in an, uh, in an instant and through a lifetime. A grace and faith that transform comes through pain and suffering. Its results are repentance and martyrdom. Um, there's a story that I've actually been sharing with some of my students lately. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I get to teach at a classical school. I teach medieval history. So we teach a lot or we talk a lot about church things because church history is part of the Western history. Um, so we get to look at what is the church? What do they believe? What are the sacraments? Um, and the sacrament of... Um, confession and repentance makes no sense to them. And I told them this story about um, something that had happened to me uh, growing up in high school. Um, I had grown up um, really struggling with self-image um, because I grew up with a hearing loss and had these big bulky hearing aids uh, that became a major point of insecurity for me. Um, and I was actually picked on kind of a lot as a kid because, you know, it was an easy target. So what I started to do was develop a very biting and hard sense of humor that I could use to turn back onto other people so that uh, the pain would deflect back onto them. And that really crystallized to a point in high school where I was floundering and suffering, um, trying to find a friend group that would land. And there was a, uh, a kid named Mark that was a very, very easy target. And I noticed that when I picked on Mark, 
I had a lot of approval behind me. Um, it started with just maybe um, making a sarcastic and underhanded comment to him, uh, to his face where he wasn't necessarily picking up on, but the people around me would have. Um, it started growing into actually making fun of him behind his back in the middle of class or saying something very sarcastic after he would say something out loud. Um, but then it, it got outright to the point of where I was saying very cruel things to him. Um, and all the while as I'm doing this, I'm winning the approval of uh, my classmates more and more. And there was one day where I wrote this letter to him where I put all his insecurities on blast. Um, I picked up on the smallest, but what I could tell the most embarrassing parts to him. And I made a mockery of it and I wrote it all down. And I showed my friends this note that I wrote and I folded it up and I walked by his desk and I placed it on his desk. And by the good grace of God, my teacher walked by right at that moment and he picked up this piece of paper and he read it and he actually started crying. And he looks at me and he points to the door like we're going out to the hallway. So I get my stuff and I go into the hallway and he grabs me by the shoulders and he says, do you have any idea who this kid is or what he's been through or why he is the way he is and he started to tell me mark's story and this kid had lost both of his parents at a young age he was living with his grandparents um he was actually on um the autistic spectrum so he was a little different and he had so much pain in his story. And as I was hearing this, I had realized that I was taking this pain and I was digging the knife deeper and deeper and deeper. And it, it broke me. I, I started to weep. I wept for a couple reasons. I, I wept because one, I realized what I had become. I was looking at myself in the face and seeing a monster. Um, I also wept because I knew the kind of pain that was being done to Mark. That was the kind of pain that was being done to me. And I wept because I knew I was, I was crushing him. And I went to ISS, I got in this huge trouble. My parents came and they, you know, they had to come to the school and they had to read the note themselves that I wrote to Mark. And it was the most excruciatingly painful thing I've ever been through because of the shame. But it was also the most transformative moment of my life. I would not have found God again later without that pain because it was that pain that be began to transform me. That is what we mean by repentance. But God is not just calling us to a life of repentance. He is also calling us to pick up his cross and follow him. He's calling us to a life of martyrdom. Now when we think martyrdom, we think big M, we think the people who um, live in such a spectacular way and then die in such a spectacular way that they're venerated and remembered forever. But I think we need to remember that martyrdom actually comes in the long and the sustained. Martyrdom is the willingness to suffer for the love and the good of another. When I was thinking about the picture of martyrdom, The person that kept, kept coming to mind for me was actually my wife. You guys, most of y'all know Brianne. Um, Brianne is very humble, very quiet, very introverted. 
Um, she will fly under the radar sometimes because she is so unassuming. But I can tell you how much time and thought and effort she puts into the way that she loves people. When we pick out gifts, Brienne is so thoughtful with the kind of person that she's trying to love and bless. And she also works a job where she is a counselor at a Title I school where kids are going through some of the most excruciating stories and backgrounds. Horrible, horrible things. And uh, Brienne is a counselor. She comes home with some of the most horrible stories. And I, I don't know how she does it. I don't know how she doesn't just break. And it kills me to watch a part of her dying every day to love those kids. And yet, the person that sits here in front of me now is so different than the person I married. She has been transformed and made new through that act of martyrdom. When that day comes, when Christ finally returns, he is going to look at her and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is martyrdom. And I think it becomes very easy for us to come up with excuses for why we should not be a martyr. Um, and maybe let's take 30 seconds. I don't want us to take too long, but maybe 30 seconds. What are some of those excuses that keep you from following Christ and his call to martyrdom? Go ahead and turn to each other and go. So I think the um, probably the most common excuses that we tend to tell ourselves when we're called to those little acts of martyrdom is either, um, well, I hear a lot of people say, well, I don't know if I'm called to this particular person or called to these group of people, which I think we know. If we've been called into a life of discipleship, you're called. I think the other excuse we often tell ourselves is that we don't have time or we don't have effort uh, left in our bodies. I think the time and effort piece is usually actually an indicator to us that we're spending our, our time and effort on something else that doesn't matter quite as much. We can't be a martyr for everything. But sometimes I think we waste a lot of emotional energy on things that just are not as important. So the next soil, we'll get through this one kind of quickly. Uh, this one, Jesus says, this is the, the soil that is the thorny soil. Um, it is the, where the worries and the cares of the world the deceit of wealth or the desire for other things can take the seed that has grown and begun to mature and choke it out. And I think there could be a whole sermon spent on every single one of those, but I do want to spend maybe more time on the cares of this world as this seems the most timely and appropriate right now. Um, and as far as thinking about uh, Peter, I want you to recall back that Peter uh, was asked by Jesus to pray for him right before the crucifixion, and three times he falls asleep. We see Peter get choked out. But maybe let's take 30 seconds here uh, real quick. Um, I want you to turn and discuss with each other one more time. What do you think are the biggest cares 
and the worries of the world right now that present as a possible threat to choking you out. So what are, what are some of the um, potential cares of the world that are resonating with you the most deeply right now? Shout it out. All of them? Yeah, that should cover it, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's impossible not to turn on the news right now and not feel some sort of despair. Uh, this whole Ukraine situation, I keep thinking about the people who are there on the ground. I keep thinking about uh, my friends in Estonia who I've built a relationship with over the years. I keep thinking about Joseph and Gretchen and how they're also part of a uh, formerly communist um, state um, I think a lot about the coronavirus, you know, what is, what is the wise path forward in all of this? Um, I think a lot about the future of our country. I think about how, whether we have the right or the left taking control, it seems like the future of our democracy is at stake. I, I think we're all there. And I think actually it's good to fear some of these things. Fear is a part of the human um, soul and body. It is a good part of God's creation. I think a lot of us have the misconception that fear is a bad thing. Fear is not a bad thing. If you did not have fear, you would not have life for very long. Uh, there is a reason why the people who have no fear often end up on Netflix documentaries and then they die at like 27 or 26. Fear is a good part of God's creation. So let me say that before what I'm about to say. But fear, like any emotion or any passion for that matter, can become deadly when it becomes a ruler over you. Um, and when I think about the church right now, I think it's really ironic that the church, you hear people say a lot don't be ruled by fear. Do not make a decision based out of fear. Yet ironically, a lot of the people who are saying those things are also being ruled by fear. Fear, um, I think, works a lot like a shadow puppet sometimes. With a shadow puppet, we take a real thing. Um, maybe it's from, from our hands or it's something in the environment and we shine a light onto it. But then interestingly, a bigger and a darker image projects behind it. And when we make the shadow puppet, we start, we don't really focus on the real, the object itself. We focus on the projection that comes out behind it. And I think this is a real warning for um, this culture that has begun to be cultivated of this obsession with um, uncovering or discovering the dark forces behind culture. It is good to be aware of the cultural idols. It is good to see that it is the spirit of the age that rules the world and that the kingdom of heaven um, is contrary to it. Yet we can become obsessed with looking at the dark image. If you remember from Lord of the Rings, um, I think it was Pippin, he grabs this glass ball um, that if you gazed into it deeply, you could see what Sauron was up to. But Gandalf hid this glass ball from him 
because he knew it was too much to handle. If Pippin had spent too much time looking into the eyes and the plans of Sauron, he would have lost his mind. And I think there is a, an important reminder for us to not to gaze too deeply into the eye of Sauron. Yes, we need to acknowledge that the kingdom of darkness exists. But when we become obsessed, rather than light entering the eye and forming us and making us new, the darkness can enter the eye and form us and choke us out and fill us out with despair. <laughs> So to wrap it all up, I hope you feel a little bit hopeless in a way. If you heard this and you thought, yes, I do this or I do this or I do this, it is because you are self-aware and you are a human being. If that didn't cross your mind once, I'll be praying for you. So what is the good soil? The good soil is the soil that bears fruit and it multiplies. The good soil is the soil in which the tree of life grows out of. And Christ calls us to come and eat from the tree that grows in the good soil. Christ is the good soil. So I'm going to call the band to come up and um, start playing a little bit of uh, misty-eyed background music. Um, and when we come up and we take uh, communion, um, oh yeah, I need to call those guys up too if you're serving communion. Um, when, when you're coming up and receiving communion, I want you to think that we are... Um, we are eating from the tree of life and that life, that tree of life is clearing out the soil and regenerating our hearts so that we may also be good soil. So come on up, get some of that good fruit. <laughs> <laughs>